How long have you waited? How long have you languished in this swamp, in this hell of fetid darkness? How long have you listened, listened to the night calls of the singing cranes? How long have you watched the play of life and death, predator and victim? How long have you lived this nightmare here in the darkness? Lived it so long that you've almost forgotten once you were a man. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a man-thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide through the strange, the bizarre, and the just plain weird of 70s swamp-based monster comics. This week we'll be discussing Savage Tales number one and the origin of the man-thing. But first, emails! That is, this would be the section of the show where I would read out all the emails I've received and answer them in a uh, quippy yet informative manner. Alas, I have no emails. But I shouldn't be surprised since this is the first real episode I've done, so no one knows that I'm here. But now, you do know. And you have no excuse not to send me a message or a question or a comment or an insult if you're so inclined. I'd prefer that you didn't, but, you know, the world is full of all kinds. But how, Paul? I hear you saying in an imaginary voice in my head. How do we contact the show? Well, it's easy, imaginary voice. Just send an email to nexus at daddyelk.com or contact me via Twitter at Nexus of All. I should point out that uh, Daddy Elk is a blog that I do, which Nexus of All Realities is a part. Uh, eventually, I do have plans to separate them out and give Nexus its own website and emails, etc., but haven't had time to do that yet. Or, if I may quote some time-honored Scottish wisdom, I'm giving it all she's got, Captain. I'm only one man. <laughs> I I actually, I thought about doing the accent there, but, you know, I'll save the butchering of accents for later episodes. Just a little something for y'all to look forward to. But now, on with the show! Man-Thing's first appearance was in Savage Tales number 1, released in May of 1971. To put things in perspective, things going on in May 1971 included Amtrak began operation, uh, NPR, National Public Radio, started broadcasting, uh, the musical Godspell premiered off-Broadway. Arsenal won the FA Cup over Liverpool, which is apparently a thing people care about. Montreal Canadiens won the Stanley Cup over the Chicago Blackhawks, which is definitely a thing people should care about. And it was reported that 60% of Americans began to oppose the war in Vietnam. Also, actor Paul Bettany was born, and in an incredible example of forward thinking, was immediately cast as Jarvis and the Vision by Marvel Studios. They were really ahead of the game. Savage Tales was Marvel's attempt at creating a magazine-style comic. By being a magazine, it could skirt the comic book code at the time and be more mature. There could be more violence and overt sexuality. I guess it's kind of tame by today's standards, but for the time, pretty edgy. Interestingly, the second issue of Savage Tales would not be released until October of 1973, two and a half years after the first. That's quite a delay. The reason for this, at least the story that Roy Thomas tells, is that Martin Goodman, the publisher of Marvel, didn't want to do a non-code book. He didn't want to offend anyone. He didn't want to cause trouble. And he didn't want to do a magazine-style book in general. So he used any excuse he could to delay the publication or outright cancel it. Two and a half years later, Goodman was gone and the publication resumed. The significance of this for Man-Thing was that he was meant to be a recurring character in Savage Tales. 
Without the book, the character was moved into other titles, other less mature-oriented titles. So the stories became, at least for a time, I don't want to say watered down, that's not right, more comic booky, if that makes sense. It would have been interesting to see where the character would have gone if allowed to remain in the more adult magazine style. It would have been different, absolutely, but in my mind, I don't think it necessarily would have been better. Of course, this is all speculation, but by pulling it out of the gritty, realistic, sex-charged, grown-up horror book, the stories were allowed to be freer, more creative, and frankly, silly. As I said in the introduction episode, I love Bronze Age comics. I love the goofiness, the absurdity, the innocent weirdness of it all. It doesn't always work, but it's always fun. For a title like Man-Thing, that silliness helped pushed it into something more than just a basic horror story. It was allowed to tell stories that the rigid adult style wouldn't have let it do. It could spread out into fantasy and sci-fi as well as horror. And when it did do violence, it was tempered with humor. And when it did attempt social commentary, it didn't take itself too seriously. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. What we're concerned with now is the first issue of Savage Tales, or at least 11 pages of it. The cover of Savage Tales I won't go into great detail about because it doesn't depict the man-thing, but it's actually quite striking. It's a painted image by John Buscema, which shows Conan lifting a severed head with a woman all wrapped around his leg. It's a very uh, typical fantasy type of cover, but it's quite nice. What is important to us is the bottom left. It's a bit of text announcing the coming of the man-thing. I'll say that again. The coming of the man-thing. Let's pause for a moment and let that sink in, shall we? The coming of the man-thing. Honestly, I have nothing more to add to that, so please feel free to make your own jokes and send them to me. I'll read them off next week. Do you think that they knew exactly what that title was? Surely, they must have, right? All subsequent reprintings have the title as The Origin of the Man-Thing, or simply The Man-Thing. So, yeah, you gotta think they knew, right? The coming of the man-thing. The credits are listed simply as Story by Jerry Conway and Roy Thomas and Art by Gray Morrison. In a remote laboratory in the Florida Everglades, biochemist Ted Salas is working on a secret soldier super serum, which has a lot of S's in it and is very hard to say. He's brooding over the fact that he has been, in the past, part of the creation of a chemical to help kill soldiers during wartime. His girlfriend, Ellen Brandt, arrives in a rather skimpy, practically non-existent nighty to cheer him up. Two hours later, a government agent named Hamilton, whom Ted has been waiting for, doesn't show. In a panic, Ted burns the formula and destroys all the serum except for a single syringe. He and Ellen attempt to leave the lab. Later, in a different location, they find Hamilton dead and two thugs waiting for them. Ellen then reveals that she is actually a spy and has been playing Ted the whole time. Ted betrayed and angry, overpowers the two thugs and escapes in his car. In order that no one else get their hands on the serum, Ted injects it into himself. Which you do. When trying to hide something, you inject it into your body. It's, it's a perfectly rational thing to do. He skids his car off the road and into the swamp. In the depth of the swamp, a transformation takes place. The serum, combined with the muck and the slime, transform him into the man-thing. Back on the road, Ellen and the thugs are searching for Ted when their car is stopped by the Man-Thing. Man-Thing, easily and brutally, dispatches the thugs, then heads for Ellen. He reaches out and touches her face. It burns with his touch. He does not kill her, however, 
For a reason he does not comprehend, the man-thing leaves her and stumbles off into the swamp, where he looks at his own reflection in the water, barely comprehending the thing he has become. It's a pretty simple, straightforward story. It's only 11 pages, there's not much space here to go into great detail, so we only get the briefest of explanations, and it does gloss over certain things that in other comics would have taken a a little bit more time to to flesh out. But it's well-paced, and it's tight storytelling, and everything is needed here. Uh, Although the details will be elaborated on and retconned to a certain extent, the essence of this origin will remain in all future stories. That doesn't mean that it's perfect, mind you. It does have some flaws. Before I get into that, though, I have to say that the real strength of this is the artwork. Now, I'm not very familiar with Gray Morrow, but his work here is stunningly beautiful. The black and white work extremely well, and this is a comic that was specifically created to be in black and white, so it's dark and it's moody. It makes the swamp an ominous place, and the Man-Thing himself is both a part of it and separate from it at the same time. He seems to ooze in and out of the background in dramatic shades and shadow. It's really quite gorgeous. The story begins in media res, with the Man-Thing fully formed fighting an alligator in some really dramatic action shots. It really conveys his strength and casual brutality, and also his mindlessness. This is an aspect of the character I find unique. The Man-Thing is instinct and emotion. It is constantly reinforced that he does not understand the world or the people in it. All he understands is emotion and reacts in response to that emotion. He does occasionally get glimpses of who he was, the man he was, but these only serve to confuse him and to make him push away from his humanity rather than try to get it back. This makes Man-Thing different from, say, Frankenstein's monster, who, at least in the movies, is portrayed as a brute but who wants to remember who he was and wants to be human again. Man-Thing doesn't care or even understand what being human is, let alone wanting to be it. In flashback, we get Ted Salas feeling remorse for having created something in the past that kills. It's insinuated in a newspaper headline that it's napalm or something similar. And yet he states very clearly that what he's working on will now kill as well. So... Bit of advice, if you're morally conflicted about what you're doing, stop doing that. Just saying. That didn't make a lot of sense other than the fact that we need the formula to advance the story. He also says he doesn't even know what the serum will do, which frankly, I don't have much confidence in a scientist that creates something even he can't explain. This makes it all the more ridiculous that he injects himself with it rather than, you know, smashing it or dumping it or dropping it in the swamp, anything other than injecting it into your body. But again, this is needed to get the story where it needs to be. We need the Man-Thing created, so this is it. Ellen shows up in the story in the beginning wearing, well, she's naked, or at least as naked as could be depicted. But essentially, she's full frontal. This is the mature part of the magazine, I'm guessing. Uh, She coaxes Ted into bed, and he's fully dressed in one panel, then in the next is completely undressed. This happens in mid-sentence while he's talking, so it seems Ted Salas is not only a biochemist, but is also a speed stripper. Either that, or Ted stopped talking in the middle of a sentence, they had some happy fun time, and then he resumed talking exactly where they left off, which, you know, kudos to attention to detail and all that. Ted and Ellen leave the remote lab and go somewhere? This somewhere is also in a remote part of the Everglades, so... 
It's not really explained why they had to go there. I didn't understand why they just didn't stay where they were. It's as if there was a little bit more to this story that we're just missing. It doesn't hurt the story, mind you. I just found it a bit jarring. And Ellen Brandt is found to be a femme fatale, which is fine. It's an obvious twist, but nothing wrong with it per se. She does spend the issue wearing pretty much no clothes, even when she should be wearing clothes. This kind of takes away from the seriousness of her as a character, making her eye candy to be threatened rather than a viable threat. Her character will be elaborated on in the future, so that redeems this a bit. In fact, much of what comes in the future will serve to fix all the flaws in this origin story. Details will be filled in, backstory explained, missing time, and so forth. So I'm inclined to forgive the cracks in the story knowing what comes. But if all you had to go on was this issue, I admit you might be left scratching your head from time to time. Man-Thing in this story is shown to be a killer. There is no ambiguity about that. He dispatches the thugs violently. One, he snaps like a twig. It's really brutal stuff. In the future, for the most part, he will be seen as willing to kill, either on purpose or by accident, but it will be toned down significantly. And the burning touches here. This, again, will become a significant part of the Man-Thing mythos. Although it's not directly stated here that it's because of fear, Ellen is shown to be afraid, so it can be presumed that the burning is fear-based, but it's not elaborated on at all. Uh, It's ripe for retcon, is what I'm saying. Overall, my snark aside, I'm very fond of this story. In many ways it feels very modern, while in other ways it feels very much a product of the era it was created in. As I said earlier, Savage Tales was an adult-oriented experiment, one that Man-Thing was meant to be a continuing part of, mature themes and content, but because of behind-the-scenes drama, this was not meant to be. As a result, the character will have a dramatic change in its tone and will go off in a very, very different direction. But the groundwork is here. The foundation that all other Man-Thing stories will be built upon is in this 11-page story, so you've got to give it some respect for that. Okay, so where can you find this issue, or rather, story? I found this one very hard to track down. There was a Savage Tales omnibus at one time, but I can't tell if that's still available or not. You can definitely find this story in the Man-Thing omnibus, which is where I'm reading it from, and in Essential Man-Thing Volume 1. If there's any other places out there, I don't know about them. All right, I'm going to take a quick break here, and when I come back, I'm going to have a preview of the next episode. The Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that taste forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler, and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2 in 1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know it's another short one, but, uh, you know, it's a short issue, and I don't have any filler like, say, 
an email to read. Hint, hint. Yes, I'd love to hear from you. Please send me an email. That's nexus at daddyelk.com, or you can contact me via Twitter, at Nexus of All. In all honesty, the whole point of doing this is to get feedback. I love to read comics, and I love to talk about comics, but I also love to learn about comics. So if you have any bits of trivia, or can point out something I missed, or anything you want to add, I absolutely would love to hear it. Next time on the Nexus of All Realities, it'll be a twofer. That's right, it's two. Two. Two episodes in one. (laughs) We'll be covering Astonishing Tales number 12 and Astonishing Tales number 13, featuring Kazar, Lord of the Hidden Jungle, which has nothing to do with Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle. It's nothing to do with that. It's Kazar, Lord of the Hidden Jungle. They're absolutely different. Actually, I know nothing about Kazar. I'm sure he's very, um, interesting. Anyway, Man-Thing takes a co-star role in those issues, so that'll be fun because Man-Thing's in it. Trust me. That just leaves me to say that you've been listening to The Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elk production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics and no infringement is intended. All materials used on this broadcast are for illustrative purposes only, and all copyrights are with the respective copyright holders. The Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast, can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. We can also be found online at nexusofallrealities.com and daddyelk.com nexus. Please visit and leave a comment. Also, if you get a chance, leave us a comment on iTunes. That'd be cool if you did. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? That's it. Thanks, everybody. I'll see you next time. Bye.